Would you turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6? And if you don't have a Bible, let me encourage you to grab one under the chairs in front of you. You can find Matthew 6 on page 787. For the last couple of weeks, we've been uh, starting to dig into the beginning of the Lord's Prayer. We noted that Jesus' disciples came to him one day and said, Lord, teach us to pray. And of course, Jesus was thrilled to give them an answer. He gave them and he gives us this model for all prayer. And even in the first couple of weeks, we've already begun to notice how it is so very different than the way we tend to pray if we pray. There are six requests in this prayer, and the first three are Godward. They praise Him for who He is. They recognize His excellencies. That's critical foundation laying before we get to next Sunday, give us. But we tend to run right to the needs and requests. We tend to submit our ticket. We said our, our, our put our order in at the deli counter while neglecting praise entirely. That's backwards. Jesus is instructing us, knowing that our hearts need to first be recalibrated by praise and reconnected to the heart of the Father. Let's read again, Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 9. Listen carefully. These are God's words. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we again pray that you would take what is familiar to many, that you would bring freshness to it in our minds and hearts that we would hear you speak with authority and clarity into our lives, and that by your Spirit, that you would give us strength to follow, to yield, to trust you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Over the years, we've talked pretty openly about struggling to get a better response congregation-wide at prayer meetings, to, to get us on our knees as a community pleading before the throne for kingdom prayers. That's what we call our monthly gathering. That's what we call our Sunday morning uh, prayer meeting, kingdom prayer, because we want to be aiming at things bigger than me, myself, and I, little old me. We want to be praying as God longs for His glory to be spread across the land. And, and over the years, as we've struggled to get a greater response, I've had a lot of you say to me, we need a series, a sermon series on prayer. And I've always agreed. And, and, and I've thought in the back of my mind, how do we um, bring that about in just the right time and um, occasion? This particular series is an example of uh, God working just all the right pieces to bring it about. But I would say at the same time, what we most need is not simply solved in a sermon series on prayer. This kind of series very well may help you learn how to pray. A lot of us would say, I I don't know how to pray well. Hopefully this will give you some tools on your belt. 
A series like this very well may prompt you to think about prayer more often and uh, consider ways to pray more deeply, more thoughtfully, more biblically. Those, those are benefits we hope are always there. But the way to address shallow prayer lives has these kinds of gospel-centered questions at its root, questions that should strike us on an every Sunday basis, not just whenever we have a particular sermon series on prayer, questions like these. Do I believe and live like there is only one king who by very nature of his title has authority over my life? That's how John started our worship service in preparing us for worship, speaking about kingship. It's a question of authority, as he pointed out. Do I believe and live like God is the only judge and He is perfectly just and holy and I, in contrast, am a broken sinner who has rebelled against Him? Do I believe that? Do I live like that? Do I trust that His Father's heart delights to bring me greatest joy? And can I admit without any hesitation that I absolutely lack what it takes to bring about that joy? let alone to rescue myself from sin and death, to save myself. If yes to these questions and others like it, then I should become desperately dependent upon Him and passionate about God's glory, not my own petty desires, and then praying Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done, would be the most natural thing in the world to come before God with. We're going to talk about those two phrases one at a time, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. First with um, the coming kingdom, because we need to understand what the kingdom of God means before we ask that that kingdom would come. Um, It's not absent in the Old Testament, but it's certainly this theme of the kingdom of God comes um, uh, into openness, comes comes into greater clarity in the New Testament right away with the preaching of John the Baptist. He's the last prophet. He's the forerunner of the Messiah. He's preparing the way, and his message really has two um, emphases. One is repent, turn away from your, uh, the way you're heading and go the other direction. And the second is the kingdom of God is at hand. It's close. It's drawing near. That second part was also the emphasis of Jesus' early preaching ministry saying the very same thing, taking the baton from John the Baptist and, and carrying it along, the kingdom of God is at hand. And his hearers largely knew what he was saying, that God's old promises to his people throughout all of history were now coming to fulfillment in his life and ministry, that the rightful king had arrived on the scene to assert his rule and reign. We sung that in Build Your Kingdom. To assert his rule and reign over all of his people and over all of his creation. Jesus' hearers largely knew what he was saying. That's why he immediately developed enemies, people who were out to get him from early the early stages of his public ministry. Throughout the Bible, the the the... The idea of the coming kingdom of God was always something that was looking forward in time, looking into the history, uh, looking into the future, rather. And we could summarize that anticipation in three statements. Uh, People were waiting for the day when God would, number one, free His people from captivity. 
And so in the early Israelite history, that meant an exodus from slavery to Egypt, right? Occupation or um, rule by a foreign power over God's people. Free us from captivity, God. But later on, the fulfillment of that means freedom from the captivity of sin, Uh, a new exodus, if you will, the ultimate exodus. A second thing God's people were waiting for was for God to finally and fully defeat His enemies, which mean our enemies. And so back in the day, again, in in Israelite history, um, God defeating His enemies meant protecting His people Israel uh, from those who would attack her in the promised land for those who would um, always be nipping at her heels and trying to regain territory and attacking and, and taking people off as, as slaves. But in the ultimate promises of God, that means sin and death, our ultimate enemies, are put away. They are finally destroyed never again to affect us. And then the third thing uh, that the anticipation of God's coming kingdom involved was waiting for God to bring His people home to dwell with Him. Back in the day, that meant Israel wandering for 40 years through the desert and being brought to a new home, a land flowing with milk and honey, Canaan, the promised land, in which would be um, uh, placed or located Jerusalem, the city of David, in which would be built the temple where God would symbolically dwell among His people, to be with them. That was never the ultimate promise. That was never the, the uh, intended end, the consummation picture. That only points forward to something that we still await, which is at the very end of history, Revelation 21 and 22, the last pages of the Bible say, um, the new heavens and the new earth come together. These two dimensions of reality, a heavenly reality and an earthly reality, are, are made one on the last day, and the new Jerusalem is where God dwells with His people, a renovated, glorious city. That's what it means for us to pray, Thy kingdom come. God, finish what You have started. Do what You've said you would do. That's what thy kingdom come means. It, it, it's, it's big picture, salvation oriented. It points to what is most important in the grand story with a capital S, all caps story of what God has been and will do in our world. How different that is compared to the petty and mundane worries that fill our minds and water down our typical prayers. But here's the question. If Jesus came and walked among us and announced that His kingdom had come, then why is it that we don't see, when we look around us, these evidences, these promised results of the coming kingdom? Why don't we see freedom from captivity? There are still people in physical slavery in today's world. There are many more people who are enslaved to the idols, the false gods, the the God substitutes, the thing that we say we must have in order to be happy. Why don't we see God's people freed from that kind of captivity? Why don't we see sin and death done away with fully and finally? We continue to grieve the loss of loved ones. 
we continue to see sin tear apart families and communities and churches. And why are we not home with God? Why is this reunion so long delayed and so far off in our minds that for most of us, we don't think of it at all? A British pastor, Tom Wright, helps us with these thoughts. He wrote this, what Jesus did, He did uniquely once and for all. That is essential to the gospel. We don't have to go on repeating it again and again. He's talking about the cross and the empty tomb. And we couldn't even if we wanted to. Rather, think of it like this. Jesus is the medical genius who discovered penicillin. We are doctors, ourselves being cured by the medicine, now applying it to those who need it. Jesus is the musical genius who wrote the greatest oratorio of all time. We are the musicians captivated by His composition ourselves who now perform it. The kingdom did indeed come with Jesus, but it will fully come when the world is healed, when the whole creation finally joins in the song. We're beginning to turn the corner here with this idea to realizing that we have a role to play even when we pray something as big and cosmic as thy kingdom come. This is why the Apostle Peter says um, in, in his first epistle, this is your identity, who you are, and this is your calling, what you are to be about. He says this, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's Special possession, amazing identity statements. That you may, or so that you may, do what? Declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Why are we declared children who have this privilege of access to speak to and expect to be heard by our Heavenly Father? Why do we have this amazing identity, these promises of God declaring us to be these things so that we may declare, so that we may point to Him, so that we may exalt Him through our lives? Here's what we're saying. Jesus teaches His disciples to pray, Thy kingdom come, Father. Thy will be done. But it's absolutely not a passive prayer that says, God, we're just going to sit back and you do what you do. This is going to be great. I'm I'm going to really enjoy watching you act in history from my front row seat. It is not at all a passive prayer like that, that sits back and expects God to do the work. Of course, He is the unique, powerful, almighty one who operates by His Spirit and through His Word. But the way God usually accomplishes His kingdom purposes is through His people. He calls us to bring about the the results, not on our own, but filled with His Spirit, empowered by His truth. He calls us to, as we pray this prayer, Thy kingdom come, He calls us to be ready to give and serve and sacrifice, and go, and pray all the more, because as we do these things, we realize our inadequacies, we realize our utter incompetence, our utter folly, and we say, God, you want me to do this, I don't have what it takes, and, and that perfect spiral 
that, that cycle, not a vicious cycle, but the healthiest cycle that could possibly, um, in, you, we could engage in, says, you're calling me to do, I don't have what it takes, I need to pray, I need to be filled with your spirit, and then I can go and do what it takes, and, and it keeps us in complete dependence upon the one who provides all power. And so thy kingdom come, far from being a passive prayer, really sounds more like this. God, as you have transformed me and given me newness of life through faith in Jesus Christ, as you have healed me through his gospel, now use me as a healing agent in the lives of other people who are broken, just like I have been and I continue to be. As you've captured my heart with the beauty of the gospel's music, then use me to play and display that beauty for all to see that they might bow down as well and glorify the king. First um, Thessalonians is uh, one of Paul's letters. And if we were to give it a sort of a subtitle, we could say that First Thessalonians is really about how to live in light of the coming kingdom. How to live in light of the coming kingdom. The the people to whom Paul is writing um, were assuming that Jesus was coming any day now, and many of them had quit their jobs. They had stopped providing for themselves and for their families. They were leeching off other people, and they were spreading false teachings about the return of Jesus. The the ultimate sign of the, the coming kingdom in its consummation, in its final form. And so Paul wrote this letter to give some very practical instruction, and and this is the way we could look at every chapter hitting this theme, how to live in light of the coming kingdom. Chapter 1 says, turn away from idols. Chapter 2 says, share the gospel. Tell people about this greatest of news. Chapter 3 says, overflow with love and live in holiness and purity. And in particular, he mentions sexual immorality. Stay away from it. Chapter 4, he says, handle grief and suffering in light of resurrection, that is, the promised reality in the coming kingdom. All things, physical and spiritual, being made new, given new life. And in chapter 5, guard your hearts from sin. You need to hear it again. Be careful. It's a dangerous world out there. You have enemies. How to live in light of the kingdom. An entire epistle that says, thy kingdom come has a lot to do with the practical outworkings of following after Jesus. It's not some pie-in-the-sky, theological, irrelevant thing. As we pray, thy kingdom come, it's as if God says, yeah, now bring it about, at least to the extent that I call you. There are some things that God alone can do, and He is doing because He keeps His promises, but He would also say to us, even as we pray that, cosmic prayer. Do what I call you to do. I've given you the status. I've given you this amazing identity so that you may de- declare my praises, God would say. And then one day, when Jesus does return to complete all of history, to wrap everything up, this statement will be true from Revelation 11, verse 15. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Messiah, and He will reign forever and ever. That's what we're after. That's what our, our, our prayers should be aiming at, that this reality that God has promised would come true. And somehow, we don't have time to get into this, Peter's epistle says we hasten the day 
when we preach the gospel. We hasten the day of Jesus' return when we engage in gospel ministry and overflow with His love. An amazing thought. Praying thy kingdom come then. It is so much more robust. It's so much more biblical. It's it's so much more meaningful. It it packs such a greater punch than the weak and mundane and vanilla version that would go more like God, we just pray that you would just bless us. <laughs> it's an okay prayer. Let's aim higher. And thy kingdom come points us in the right direction of what it means to aim higher, to think bigger as God sees the world and all of history. No, thy kingdom come. Bring about your promised future reality. Give us a glimpse, a taste now of what will be in the new heavens and the new earth, that our faith might be strengthened. Uh, Secondly, perfect submission, to borrow a line from a great hymn. The second part of this petition is not separate. It's not part two, moving on. It is a natural overflow of the first. Thy will be done. That's a prayer of submission. And embedded in that are these thoughts. You are the king, I am the servant. That's a simple statement. But there's all kinds of attitudes and proper relationships and roles within that simple statement. You are the king, I am the servant. And so give me greater trust in your heart and give me greater strength to obey whatever is your will. So there's a humility there that yields to God in addition to the willingness to obey His will. And it, it, that second part, that willingness to obey, is such an important part of what it means to be in intimate relationship with the Father. Because pick, picture um, a young child. Some of you are saying maybe an older child as well. You give a child instruction... And he or she might actually do what they're told, but is that a willing, joyful obedience? If there's eye rolling, if there's stomping of the feet as they go off to clean their room, you know, if, if there is this inner heart disposition that has, if you could look in there, defiance. I'm only doing this because you're bigger than me. And you can bring about this consequence. There's obedience, in a sense. They've done what you've instructed. But in a healthy relationship of trust between child and parent, let alone between children and a heavenly father, there should be an element of yielding in trust, of joyful submission, not simply obedience. John Wesley, uh, the founder of the Methodist movement, the great hymn writer, he prayed this prayer, um, quoting some Puritan writings. I had this thought, you know, as John was saying, Tim Keller once tweeted, one day people are going to say that, just like I'm saying, a Puritan once wrote down, and it's published for us uh, for all time. I don't know how we'll keep track of tweets. But John Wesley said, I am no longer my own, but thine. He's praying this prayer, okay? Put me to what thou wilt, rank me with whom thou wilt. Put me to doing, put me to suffering. 
Let me be employed for thee or laid aside for thee, exalted for thee or brought low for thee. Let me be full, let me be empty, let me have all things, let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to thy pleasure and disposal. There are some phrases there that we don't use that might be hard to kind of grasp exactly what he's saying, but I think we all get the gist, don't we? If I have nothing or if I have everything, it's all yours, God. If you make me important or if I'm a nobody, I'm all yours, God. Rich or poor, healthy or sick, brilliant or simple, I'm all yours. And how often do we worry about where we fall on that spectrum? whatever those two points may be. Uh, Wesley's prayer is a prayer of submission. I don't think many of us pray like that, do we? We typically say, God, I have this, I have this plan in mind, and I'm just asking you to rubber stamp it. Don't you agree that this is wise? Don't you agree that this is what your will for my life should look like? Don't we, don't we end up coming with that already prepared kind of argument before God, and then... Worst case scenario, when He doesn't grant us our will over His will, we resent Him. You know, God doesn't answer prayer. I'm not sure why He tells me to pray because I don't see the answer. And meanwhile, we've simply used Him for our own ends. But this kind of prayer of submission is what Jesus is teaching His disciples to do. Thy will be done, O God. This attitude, thy will be done, is so incredibly countercultural. It flies in the face of the, the messages that we consistently get from, from our, our, our society. You, you hear it in every feel-good story, every Disney-like movie. You, you hear it in inspirational speeches, and um, there's variations on this theme, but it's typically something that sounds like this. You can be anything you want to be. You can accomplish anything you set your mind to accomplish. All you need is the desire and to put hard work behind it. It's an Americanized, wealth-enabled humanism. It says, you, human being, have all the ability and the wisdom and the goodness inherent in you to, in this, in this land of opportunity, that's sort of the, one of the most important contexts to make this quote-unquote American dream at all a reality for many people. You have all the ability and wisdom inherent in yourself to shape your future exactly the way you want it to unfold. It's all up to you. You can do it. But I can't help wondering what um, untouchables in the lowest caste system in India would say to that. I can't help wondering what a child slave in Southeast Asia would think if he or she heard that spoken. Or uh, one of the thousands of street children in Acapulco with no home, no bed, no parent, no one to care for them, eight years old running around the city, just surviving. You can be anything you want to be. You can accomplish anything you want. It's you have it all. They would laugh and get on with their work of survival. Every self-help book out there, and there are a ton of them, assumes that a person has whatever he or she needs to thrive, to succeed, to make it in life, to bring about inner contentment. 
A subtitle for any book like that should be speaking to the audience, the reader, your will be done. Your will be done. And doesn't that sound eerily familiar like from a scene where a serpent is whispering in the ears of two human beings in a perfect little garden? Did God really say not to eat of any tree in the garden? No, 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 no. Your will be done. Be true to yourself. Don't, don't, don't be inauthentic as a human being. You do what you want to do. And that is not the gospel. That is for our destruction because sin makes us fools. And what does Jesus say to his disciples? No, you pray to your perfect father who is in heaven, who is the king, thy will be done. We instinctively do the opposite when we pray, thinking it a means of achieving my will. Listen to the Scottish pastor Robert Law. He, he wrote this, prayer is a mighty instrument not for getting man's will done in heaven, rubber stamping, but for getting God's will done on earth. That's what biblical God-honoring prayer does. It does not conform God's will to ours. It submits our will to His. The only way we can make sense of this countercultural, life-altering, everything-defining uh, kind of prayer, Thy will be done, is to look at Jesus' last night of life. You know, remember his disciples had said, teach us to pray, and he gave them this model prayer as a lesson. But the most powerful teaching lesson he provided to his followers then and still today involved living out those words himself while praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was the last night of his life. He had just had the Last Supper. He was praying in the garden in agony, waiting for the soldiers to come and arrest him, knowing what the next day would involve in the hell of the cross. And still he prayed to the Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And later on in the evening, he prayed that prayer a second time, and he repeated, may your will be done. Thy will be done. That yielding to the Father's will was not simply his acceptance of death. Okay, I'm going to die. That, that, that was just the beginning of it. It was an acceptance. It, it was a, a, a receiving of the sentence of pure and holy and just wrath from the Father to be poured out in its fullness upon Him as the Son, who 2 Corinthians 5 says, became sin. It wasn't His own sin. He was perfect throughout all of His days. It was the sin of His people placed upon Him so that He could bear our judgment. And yet that perfect submission, somehow Jesus knew as well which gave him strength for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Somehow that perfect submission made it possible for God's kingdom promises to be made real so that we would be freed from slavery to sin, 
so that sin and death would be ultimately defeated one day through resurrection and so that all of God's people might be brought home to be with Him one day, body and soul. You know, I know that praying this line can be daunting. For some of you, even fear-producing. To pray to God and mean it, thy will be done. God, are are you going to ask me to give up something I love? Are you going to take away someone I love? Are you going to call me to, to forsake it all, to leave what I call home and family and friends? But there's no way to answer that, but there is a way to overwhelm that, to crowd it out, to supersede that fear. Do you know, because you read and you reflect on over and over and over what it costs God the Father to bring His will of judgment upon God the Son, Do you trust the Father's heart of love for you because you see the extent to which He was willing to go? Do you see the the ultimate price He was willing to pay to save you from your sin? This is the Father to whom Jesus says to pray, Thy will be done. And once you believe this, and once you express with the faith of a child simple dependence, then you're on the path to freedom from fear and anxiety. You're on the path away from chasing after that which cannot satisfy. And you are able to yield to the will of the Father and say with the great hymn writer, perfect submission, all is at rest. I, in my Savior, am happy and blessed, watching and waiting, looking above, filled with His goodness, lost in His love. God, you know those worries I had about what your will would involve? Never mind. I'm good because I have all that I need through your son, Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we do pray that your kingdom would come and that we would have the willingness, the joyful submission to your will to do whatever you call us to do. We pray that, Father, we would Um, accept and embrace your will and that we would cast aside our own will and trust you as perfect Abba Father. And so, Father, we pray with one voice just as Jesus taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.